He was the pastor for a long time at the Kirby Woods Baptist Church in Memphis. And we've been there quite a few times to hear him. And um, I've heard him at all kinds of conferences uh, for many years now. And I've been so blessed by every time I hear him. He can get more out in 30 minutes. God has uniquely gifted him as an expositor. Anyone can alliterate, but he makes us literate in the Bible. And I'm so happy. I, 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 I've been wanting to get Brother Bob here for a long time. He had to rearrange some things that created a hardship on him. So that's how much he wanted to be here with us. And that blesses me. So, Brother Bob Pittman, he'll bless you. Give him a welcome from Hillcrest. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you so very much, Brother Glenn. What a joy it is to be with you. I finished a revival last night in Meridian, Mississippi, and left there at about 9. God waited till Wednesday night to just break the thing open. And he knew I had to drive a long way. Uh, but he does that to me a lot. But uh, I got home. I live in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. I got home a little after one this morning. Got up at five to come here and be with you today. But I'm delighted to be here. My greatest fear in life is falling asleep during my own sermon. <laughs> and so if, if I do that, I hope you'll just nudge me and I'll keep on. But thank you, Pastor. It's a joy to be with you. Eric, it's always good to be with you and hear you sing. What a sweet, sweet spirit and what a beautiful voice. Amen. Well, I did not get here in time to hear all of Kevin's message. I heard just the last part. And then I heard all of Jeff's message. And that fired me up. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Brother Jeff is pastor there in Corriton, Tennessee, just out of Knoxville. While the pulpit committee was dealing with him, I was, he listed me as a reference for him. And uh, I was preaching one Sunday morning in Chattanooga, just in a morning service. And somehow their search committee had uh, got on my website and saw my schedule and saw that I was just preaching on Sunday morning in Chattanooga. And they said, so they called me and they said, would you, would you drive up to Knoxville and preach at our church on Sunday night? And, and we're, we're talking to Brother Jeff LeBorg and, and we know that you know him because he's left, listed you as a reference. And so while you're preaching, will you say just a few things about him? And I said, well, I'll be glad to do that. And so I did, I'd never been to that church, Fairview Baptist, before. And I didn't know what to expect on a Sunday night. And, and so I got there. And man, I tell you, I walked in. The place was jam-packed. The balcony was full. The main floor was full. The choir was full. I've never seen anything like that. On a Sunday night, I called Jeff after the service, and I said, if you don't go, I'll go myself. It's just <laughs> wonderful. And uh, I told him one of the things that the pulpit committee asked. You know pulpit committees ask silly questions. <laughs> You know, sometimes they'll ask a pastor, well, what, what are your strengths? Well, I'm, I'm extremely brilliant, and I'm 
outstandingly handsome and very gifted. <laughs> and then they say, well, what are your weaknesses? Like, I'm going to tell them. <laughs> and they asked me, Brother Bob, what is, what is some weaknesses Brother Jeff LeBorg has? And I said, well, to be real honest, when he gets real, real drunk, he will cuss a little. <laughs> And he's been there now long enough to know that I told them the truth. <laughs> Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. Luke 6, verse 17. And he came down with them and stood in the plain. And the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And they that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him and healed them all. These three little verses, to be quite honest, are often neglected and overlooked. If you were to go to a Christian bookstore this afternoon and buy 10 commentaries on the Gospel of Luke, seven of them would say absolutely nothing about these three verses. And the reason they hardly ever looked at is because what comes before them is so important and what comes after them is so important, they get kind of lost in the shuffle. In the verses before 17, uh, Jesus is, has, is choosing the 12 men that are going to be his 12 apostles. Now, that was a big deal. That was very, very important. That was very significant to the foundation of the Christian faith that you and I enjoy today. And so the selecting of the 12 was a biggie. And then after verse 19, you have one of the very few recorded sermons of Jesus found in the New Testament, the Sermon on the Plain, and that's a very big, big deal. And so you have the choosing of the 12, and you have the, the Sermon on the Plain, and here are these three little verses, and in the minds of many commentators, they're nothing more than just connective tissue to join those two together. It's just a little bridge to get Jesus from the top of the mountain down to the plain. But if you'll look very carefully at those three verses, 17 through 19, you find a very wonderful portrait of the Lord Jesus. And I want to share with you three things. Somebody asked me, why is it that most preachers' sermons have three points? Well, that's about as high as a lot of preachers can count. <laughs> and that's two more points than any Baptist will ever remember. So it, it kind of washes out. But let me share with you three things. Number one, he came down. That's what verse 17 says. He came down. Now, he'd been up on the mountain, and he'd not been there by himself, and he'd been there for several days, it seems. But a great multitude, perhaps hundreds of people were up there with him. They came from all over Judea and Jerusalem. They came from Phoenicia, the cities of Tyre and Sidon, and all of those people who normally were strangers got together up there on the mountain with Jesus. You know, it's good to be on the mountain. Mountain tops are fun. It's good to be on the mountain. Mountaintops are a place where you can have great fellowship. 
I mean, if you've been with a group of people and they've all gone through a fresh touch of God and, and they're all filled with the Spirit and they've all had something that happened that has renewed their spiritual energy, you can have some of the sweetest fellowship with Christians on the mountain that you'll find anywhere on God's earth. But also the mountaintop is a wonderful place to, to worship God and they've been there worshiping. It's fun to worship God when all the heals, all the hurts are healed and all the hearts are calm and everybody's happy. It's fun to worship God. While the singing, you can sing the stars down when you're on the mountaintop. But it's also a great place to pray. And that's what Jesus did. The Bible says he prayed all night long. He prayed seeking the will of the Father about those 12 men that he would select out of all of those people up on the mountain with him. He was going to choose 12, 12, and he spent a night praying to discern the will of the Father about that. And so the mountaintop is a good place to be. But we don't live our life on the mountain. It's good to go there, but we seldom stay there. Jesus carried James, Peter, and John up to the mountain. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. And there on that mountain, Jesus did something he never did any other time while he was on the earth. He literally, he allowed the very deity, his glory that had been hidden, that had been veiled within. He allowed his glory to be fully revealed. And James, Peter, and John saw that glory that they had never seen before. And they, they were just overwhelmed by that. And Peter said, Lord, let's, let's stay here. Let's stay stay here. We'll build buildings. You know when preachers don't know anything else to do, they go into a building program. And so Peter said, Lord, we'll build a tabernacle for you and we'll build a tabernacle for Moses and a tabernacle for Elijah. Let's just stay here. Jesus did not rebuke him. He didn't fuss at him. But Jesus made it very clear they were not going to stay on the mountain. You see, uh, uh, the valley is where the hurts are. The valley is where the sicknesses are. The valley is where the heartaches are. The valley is where the people live with all of their problems. He came down. God said to Moses in the book of Exodus, I have seen the affliction of my people and I have heard their cries and I am come down to deliver them. He came down. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, no man hath ascended up to heaven except he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man who is in heaven. Jesus said, Nicodemus, I want you to know I'm the Son of Man who came down from heaven. He came down. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. He came down. He came down. Thank God he came down. He came down so that we might go up. He came down. Let me tell you a second thing. He came down to be heard. He came down to be heard. Now look what it says there in verse 17. And he came down with them. 
and stood in the plain and the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem from the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon which came to hear him. They came to hear him. He came down to be heard. Jesus has something to say. I was the dean of preaching at Mid-America Seminary for a number of years and students would sometimes ask, Brother Bob, how many points should a sermon have? Well, at least one. (laughs) I've heard some sermons didn't have any point to them at all. Don't you hate to go to a steak supper and be served nothing but cool whip? (laughs) Jesus had something to say. They came to hear him. And it doesn't matter who you are or where you live or what station in life you may be. He has something to say to you. He has something to say to boys and girls. He wants boys and girls to know that that he loves them and that when he died on the cross, he died for them. And he wants to tell boys and girls they can be saved. The Bible makes it clear people need to be saved. The Bible makes it clear people can be saved. But the Bible never talks about how old a person has to be to be saved. And you know when God is silent about something, we Baptists think we have to help him out. And so we've come up with this little concept of the age of accountability. And there's more in the Bible about concubines than there is that. (laughs) People are old enough to be saved when God deals with their heart. I've seen boys and girls come to give their heart to Christ in services, and you have too. And, and there are always folks who kind of raise their eyebrows. With, well, they're, they're too young to know what they're doing. Hey, when it comes time for people to walk down the aisle, that's God's business, and you'd best stay out of God's business. And so Jesus has something to say to boys and girls. Jesus has something to say to teenagers. Jesus has something to say to teenagers about their sexuality. He has something to say to them about their life's choice for a mate. He has something to say to them about what vocation they're going to go into. He has something to say to teenagers about their attitude toward their parents. He came down to be heard. He has something to say to young adults. He has something to say to young adults about how to, how to become godly parents. He wants to tell young adults how to build a strong and happy marriage. He wants to tell young adults how to live within their income so their marriage won't become full of stress. Amen. He came down to be heard. He has something to say to middle-aged adults. To middle-aged adults, he wants to tell you how to keep your marriage strong and free from affairs. He has something to say to you about how to budget your time so that you won't waste your time and lose the most precious things you have. He has something to say to middle-aged adults about how to live with teenagers. He has something to say to middle-aged adults about don't let making money become a God in your life. He has something to say. He came down to be heard. He has something to say to senior adults. 
senior adult, he wants to tell you that, that you are now living in the most exciting time of serving him you've ever had in all your life. You don't have to go to work anymore. You don't have to raise children anymore. You can spend all of your energy and time knocking on doors, making phone calls, going to the hospitals, telling people about Christ. This is the most exciting time you have in serving the Lord. He wants to tell you, senior adult, how to make the rest of your life the best of your life. Senior adult, he wants to tell you, you don't have to fear the future. And he wants you to know you can finish well. And he also wants to tell you, don't be afraid of change. I love senior adults. I are one. I'm the oldest man on the program. I'm living in that strange age now. When I was a young preacher, they said, boy, one day you're going to be a great preacher. And now they say, boy, you, I'm sure you used to be a great preacher. <laughs> and somewhere I missed it in the middle. I don't know. But beloved, God has something for senior adults that's to do. And we don't have to be afraid of change. And I know how we are. We like to sing those same old songs and we like to sit in the same old pew and we don't like anything new or out of the ordinary. But God says, he wants you to know you don't have to be afraid of change. It's not all good, but some of it is. He came down to be heard. And then one last thing. He came down to be touched. Look there with me in verse 19. In verse 19, the whole multitude sought to touch him. The whole multitude sought to touch him. Bill Gaither came to fame and fortune with that song, He Touched Me. And I love it. We've all sung it. We can all quote the words to it. But I want to tell you there's another song. It says, He is here. Hallelujah. He is here. Amen. He is here. You can touch him. And you'll never be the same. I'm grateful for that day that Jesus touched my life and saved me. But I'm also grateful for those times in my life I've been able to touch him. They sought to touch him. And Jesus did not recall from their touch. He did not try to get away from their touch. I was in a church the other day and they had a flu epidemic and I stuck out my hand to shake a guy's hand and he gave me an elbow. I wasn't sure what I was supposed to do with it. I've never been offered an elbow. <laughs> Jesus came down to be touched. There was a lady. She'd been sick for 12 years. 12 years is a long time to be sick. Most of us, when we get sick, we anticipate in a few days, maybe a few weeks, we'll be okay again, but... For 12 years, that's a long time to be sick. This woman got up one morning and she looked back on her bed and there on the bed linens were a few drops of blood. It did not alarm her. It was not anything perhaps to be concerned about. Maybe, maybe her fingernail had scratched a part of her leg during the night. And, but, but then the next morning there was more and the next morning there was more. 
but it wasn't a big deal because she was young and healthy seemingly and strong and, and her body, like all of our bodies, had the ability to replenish her blood supply and so she was losing a little, but her body would just remanufacture enough and then it got to be worse. Her hemorrhaging was more and more and more and the output of the hemorrhage became more than her body could replace. And she became anemic and weak and sickly. And the Bible says she spent all she had on physicians. And I don't think they were charlatans or crooks. They just didn't know what to do. And so this once young, attractive, probably wealthy lady has now become sickly and anemic and broken financially. And she finds herself on her deathbed. Somebody told her about Jesus. Amen. Thank God for those unnamed witnesses throughout history Amen. that told people about Jesus. Amen. The guy that told me about Jesus, you've never heard his name before. The person that told you about Jesus, I doubt I've ever heard their name before. Thank God for unnamed witnesses. And this person said, oh, he's wonderful. If you could only get to him, he could probably do something for you. And then somebody came and said, this man, Jesus, he's coming through our town today. He's coming today. And I tell you, the heart of that little anemic woman began to pump faster and faster. But she's so weak, she's dying, almost dead. And I see her as she finally manages to sit up on the edge of the bed, hardly able to do that. And then she pushes down and tries to stand and finally stands and what a struggle it must be just to put one foot in front of the other foot to walk. But she finally makes it out the door. She makes it all the way up to the, to the town, to the street where Jesus is going to be passing by. And when she gets there, there's such a crowd. Everybody wants to see it. And nobody is going to give up their place for her. And so I see this little sickly, anemic, dying woman with whatever energy she has left just sort of elbow her way through all of that press, the Bible said, all those people. And finally she gets to the front and Jesus is already passed by. And in one last ditch, desperate, I heard that word a while ago. I've been preaching 53 years. I've come to this conclusion. God only works in the lives of desperate people. God is never impressed with casual Christianity. But deity moves in desperation. Amen. And this little woman, in one last desperate attempt, just falls toward him. Amen. 
and her fingers brush the hem of his garment. She touched the hem of him. And the Bible says, virtue, power, came out of his body through that robe into her fingers and throughout her body. God's word says, and immediately that fountain, that issue of blood was dried up. Completely, miraculously, instantaneously healed by the power of Jesus Christ because she touched him. Jesus turned to his disciples and said, who touched me? And they must have chuckled. Well, Lord, what do you mean who touched you? Everybody's touched you. Everywhere we've been today, people have been lining the streets and everybody's been reaching out and touching and touching. and Everybody's touched you. And Jesus said, oh, I'm not talking about the touch of curiosity. Jesus said, somebody really touched me in faith because power flowed from me into them. And this woman acknowledged that it was her. And Jesus then said to her the most precious word he ever said to any woman. He said, daughter. You see, when that story began, the Bible introduced her simply as a certain woman. It's a wonderful thing to make the transition from a certain woman to a daughter of God, a certain man to a son of God. The power of touching him. What does it mean that he came down to be touched? What does that mean? It means he came down to be involved in your life. The Lord that we serve is not one that has been sculpted out of stone like the Buddha. The Lord we worship is not one that has been carved out of wood like the totem pole of an Indian. We serve a Savior that is alive. He has eyes and ears and a mouth. He sees, he hears, he speaks, and he comes to be a part of who we are. He's not the big man upstairs. He's the the one who came down to be a part of who we are. There are two areas here listed. One was physical. There were some who were physically ill, and he healed them. Brother Bob, do you believe Jesus still heals people? Why, of course. Of course he does. Well, Brother Bob, do you believe Jesus heals every Christian? Absolutely. Now, wait a minute, Brother Bob. Don't give me that Joel Osteen stuff. (laughs) I'm telling you, God heals every Christian. Sometimes he does it here. Sometimes he does it in heaven. I was pastor at Kirby Woods Baptist in Memphis for 20 years, one of the great, great churches. 
Man, it was such a wonderful church. Gave multiple millions of dollars through the years to mission causes. When we were building our new auditorium, we, we, we didn't have much land. Uh, Dr. Rogers was a sweet, precious friend, and he and I preached in a lot of conferences together. And when Bellevue relocated, they bought 360-some-odd acres. I said, what are y'all going to do, farm? <laughs> we had five acres at in the heart of East Memphis. And so we had to be creative. And in order to build a new building, we had to tear down an old building. I thought about that guy God called a fool, you know, the farmer who had to tear down old barns and build new barns. But we had to. And so while we were building the new building, we were meeting in our gymnasium for the worship time. We had two morning services because we didn't have enough space. And and in one end of the gym, we built a little platform, and we put hat. We had a choir that would back then it was running about 150 to 200 in the choir. Had a 50-piece orchestra, and so we divided the choir in half, and half of them sang at the early service, the other half sang at the late service, and did the same thing with the orchestra. But, but. On the platform, there was just enough room for half a choir and me, and so the orchestra had to be put down on the main floor with everybody else in front of the platform. And one Sunday night after the service, I was uh, had come down off the platform, and I was talking to somebody. I don't remember who it was. And I felt a, a tug on my, my coat, and... I thought, well, I'm hung on one of those infernal music stands. And so if I just sort of ease away from it, my coat will slide off. And so I began to ease away. And the person I was talking to, they didn't know what I was doing, but I knew what I was doing. And so they would ease with me, you know. <laughs> but I couldn't, I couldn't get off. It just kept tugging. And I turned around, and there was a little old boy tugging at my coat. And I said, what? <laughs> he said, Brother Bob? Brother Bob, do you know any dirty words? <laughs> now, how am I supposed to respond to that? No, I don't know any. I've spent my life with deacons. I know a lot of dirty words. <laughs> and I said, yeah, son, I know some. I know some dirty words. He said, you want to hear one? And before I could say anything, he said, cancer. Brother Bob, isn't that a dirty word? I said, son, I believe that's about the dirtiest word I know. What a filthy word, cancer, leukemia, muscular dystrophy multiple sclerosis, coronary thrombosis. What vile, filthy, wretched, dirty words they are. But they will never be mentioned in heaven. They're not in the vocabulary of heaven. Sometimes God heals his children here. And, I, and I'll just tell you this. I believe God would heal more here if they'd ask him. 
You know, people are funny about their illnesses. You, uh, you, you pastors know what I'm talking about. Sometimes people get sick and you know it, but they don't want anybody else to. Oh, pastor, I don't want anybody to know how sick I am. Now, if that's the way you are, I can respect that, but I sure don't understand it. I had, I had a total knee replacement here uh, three months ago. I, I called preachers I knew and some I didn't know. Just pray. I wanted everybody praying for me. I mean, on November the 15th, there was only one knee in the whole universe that I wanted God to know about, and it was that one right there. <laughs> the Bible says we have not because we ask not. And I do believe we'd see more people healed if they just asked God to do it. But if they don't get healed here, they get healed over there. But there's another thing. Jesus was not only healing those who were sick. There were some there that were vexed with demons. They were demon-possessed. Now, Brother Bob, do you believe demons are real? Well, of course. Jesus believed they were real. How can I not believe what he believed? And I'll tell you something else about demons. You'll never find in the Bible anywhere that they ever die. Every demon that ever has been still around. That guy you remember in Gadara? This man who was possessed by a legion, 6,000 demons lived in one man's body. And demons cannot rest unless they're indwelling a body. They're not happy just floating around in space. They have to possess a body. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, any demon can come into your body at any time and you have nothing with which to stop it. Nothing. Any demon can go into the body of any unsaved person at any time. Well, that man in Gadara... He was a wild man because of those demons in his life. He slept out in the tombs. He howled in the night like a wild animal. He ran through the streets naked. Men would come and try to bind him with chains and he would break the chains and assault them that had tried to bind him. Wow, maniac of a man. Jesus came to Gadara and that man saw Jesus and he ran to accost him like he had accosted everybody else. But he got just so close and down he went. And Jesus said to the demon within, what's your name? And the man, the demon said, legion, for we're many. (laughs) You may be many, but around Jesus, you ain't much. (laughs) Jesus said, come out. And they did. And because they have to be in the body, they went into the body of those thousands of pigs. The pigs ran off the cliff and committed uh, suicide. (laughs) Well, that's more than you've paid for. But every one of those demons is still on the earth. Sometimes they go in singles. Sometimes they roam in packs looking to invade another body. But the Bible says here, here came all of these who were vexed with demons. And Jesus 
heal them all. Cast them all out. You see, it doesn't matter what your problem is. Maybe you're physically sick. Maybe you're spiritually sick. Maybe you're emotionally drained. Maybe you're financially exhausted. Maybe there's a problem in your home or a problem in school or a problem at work. You're just all stressed out. Hey, hey, hey. Hear him. He came down to be heard. Touch him. He came down to be touched. 